Megan Morris is Professor of uh, Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney in Australia, and she has been involved in martial arts studies as far as um, as far as I've as, as far as I've used it as a title for anything. It's kind of since day one. Good morning, uh, good afternoon, Megan. How are you doing? Good afternoon and good morning, Paul. I'm doing well. <laughs> I'm up very early to talk to you today. Uh, I'm impressed. Mm. So you, um, you've uh, since I've known you, you've always had such a, a kind of love for anything martial arts, anything martial arts film, anything martial arts practice. I mean, the first time um, uh, when when you you held the the cultural the ACS cultural studies crossroads in cultural studies conference at Lingnan University in Hong Kong and I came and you didn't really know me from Adam but you'd never met me before but I'd written a book about Bruce Lee and you love Bruce Lee so much that you just took me under your wing and he just he just kind of went come on I look after you let's talk about Bruce Lee every waking mm. moment and every gap in the conference so mm. I mean can you tell us something about that passion well, it's, it's interesting. It goes back a long way. Um, obviously, being, you know, a woman and of a certain age that came through feminism in the 70s, um, I'm often being invited into conversations about self-defence. But I got interested in martial arts to control my own violence, um, which is not, you know, a topic. It's a topic I often try to talk about through films. But one of my earliest memories of school, I suppose I would have been about seven, and a boy was sitting behind me pulling my hair relentlessly like this childish vignette. And when I look back, I realised I wheeled around with an absolutely perfect uppercut um, instinctively. Didn't know what it was. And I got into terrible trouble, terrible trouble, because he cried. and that kind of came out of nowhere. And then, um, again, what is usually a boy's story, being bullied at school, like girls have unpopularity stories, whereas uh, I was really quite severely bullied because I lived in a very remote bush town where my mother was a teacher and my father was the forester. Um so, you know, that was like a really unpleasant situation and I wore glasses. And one day somebody took my head and scraped it along a wall, scratching all of my glasses. And in those days it took 17 hours by train to get from where I lived in the top of New South Wales to Sydney. Mm. And... So my father took me into the bush and showed me how to make somebody fall over and then kick them in the head if they were pushing you. Mm. And then poor dad, who was relatively recently returned from the war, kind of lost it, picked up a branch and showed me how to bayonet somebody. Mm. And... This kind of acceleration doesn't fit into a social path, Mm. Um, but it was extremely powerful for me. Mm. So it was later, I suppose, um, in my, you know, very early 20s, uh, a boyfriend took me to a theatre to see Fist of Fury. Mm. 
and I didn't actually even understand it very well. You know, you, you have to learn how to mm. read those images. Um, if you've only ever, well, I had seen very few films, you know, and, uh, um, and then the next one I saw was King Who, uh, which is a different sort of thing altogether. And I couldn't understand that at all. And of course, I loved that feeling as well. Mm -hmm. So from those um, bases, I uh, was on my way anyway towards becoming um, a film critic for newspapers. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a freelance writer. I didn't want to be an academic. And that was a good way to make money. So I began to see a lot of Chinese films. Yeah. And at the same time, to bring it back, you know, to your basic question, um, to be interested in physical disciplines that um, could make me feel happy. And yeah. there it is. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, you never. I, ne I didn't know that. Um, I didn't know that, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. And I want to go and obviously, you know, get, get the bullies. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I wonder how I, I, it'd be really interesting to find out how how widespread that like a complex relationship to violence and fear and maybe bullying. And, That's I mean, right. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not saying uh, that I am not interested or needful realistically of self-defense and that type of discourse for women but actually what happens to me is I'm a danger to myself and others because if I lose my temper I think I'm seven feet tall and I will just fly at somebody's throat mm -hmm. and I needed to be in a long-term relationship for the man involved to point out that he was the one that would get hit in a, mm -hmm. in a social situation so so having having um, an interest in philosophically and aesthetically rich, complex ways of reshaping one's own mm -hmm. impulses. Um, it's very important to me, you know, and I'm very, very interesting. But I, I think it's a very gendered discourse, the way we describe it. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I guess that's the assumption, but when, when these narratives come out, then... Yeah, I guess, women do self-defence, yeah. men worry about the difference between violence and martial arts. I mean, I know that is not actually the case in terms of the distribution. I'm just reading this wonderful book, which I found out about from oh, your yeah. podcast. Book, yeah, Janet O'Shea. Uh, by Janet O'Shea, you know, and, and she talks about um, issues uh, that are not commonly raised in... Yeah, have you read Martha McCoy's book about, um, it's, she did two books, one's called Real Knockout, as in the word real, actual, existing knockout. Yeah. Another one is Real Knockout, which is like cinema real. I haven't, yeah. I haven't read the, the film book, but I've read the, um, the self-defense book. That's really, that's a really good starting point for people thinking about gender and the, 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 the gendered propensities of bodies and, mm. uh, but anyway, that's, that's a different thing. Oh, so you, so in your career, you started out as a journalist, as a film critic, and you gradually became involved. I mean, a, a, a lot of, there's a lot of stuff written that, that credits you with a really formative role in the birth of, or the institutionalization of cultural studies in Australia. And from there, you took a job in Hong Kong, 
which mm-hmm. I guess was a, a, a bit like a, a bit like paradise for someone who uh, is interested in all things Chinese martial artsy. Oh, um, so you, because when you went to looking at your publications list, and by the time you get to Hong Kong, you're really writing about transnational sort of uh, action film and um, uh, and and well, transnational kind of popular culture, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but that was, um, that interest came out of being an Australian film critic in the 70s and 80s and 90s, where um, the, the industrial difficulty of continuing to produce films mm. as an English-speaking and not particularly sort of significant uh, country um, produced lots of formerly fascinating problems. So uh, in order to survive, the Australian film industry had to learn very early on how to, how to globalise in that way that also speaks directly to local publics. Because if you don't do that, then, you know, they get really cross and don't come and the market's very small here. So the first person to do that really successfully was Dr. George Miller with Mad Max and um, and then the two subsequent Mad Max films, mm-hmm. uh, Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome, have really dense Australian historical subtexts if you know how to read them, mm-hmm. but you don't have to read them in order to get pleasure out of those films if it's the type of genre that you enjoy. So I quickly discovered that uh, Hong Kong cinema, uh, differently situated, but similar issues would be raised in terms of aesthetic practice. And I always like looking at practice, whether it's martial arts or or filmmaking. And uh, so, you know, I started out writing a book about action cinema, which I've always loved. Um, always. I, mean, I, I hate horror films. I don't like the inside of the body coming out. I like explosions and <laughs> blowing shit up, you know. Um, and I, I was looking at that as a key transnational discourse in the 80s, you know, with the diehard films. Hollywood films began to talk about cultural globalisation quite explicitly in that period and I just realised I really didn't know anything about Hong Kong cinema. Mm. So many, many years later, I was already in my late 40s when the opportunity to go to Hong Kong uh, to work came up Um, and I jumped at it. But that was actually my first full-time academic job ever. Uh, My first 50 years I survived as a freelance writer in ways that's difficult now, of course. Mm -hmm. So your um, uh, there's a couple of questions on the back of that, but I, I guess uh, you always um, when you when you read Megan Morris's work, it's always it's always seems quite dense, and that denseness is is, organi- is is seems to be organized by the fact that you pay lots of attention to the production and the issues of production, and the cultural context, and the history of when something was made, and you also pay 
attention to like, well, who's going to receive this? Not in a simple, like formal sender receiver type thing, but like, this is a complex cultural context with its own history that we should need to be attentive to if we're to get this properly. And what, why is this context interesting? What does this context make of it? Um, and I, I guess that, that care, um, makes your reading sometimes quite challenging for people who don't know what to expect, do you think? Would that be fair to say? Oh, that's quite true. I mean, it sometimes makes it intolerable um, for people, and especially now where um, it's nobody's fault, but most um, academics have to be extremely instrumental, particularly if they're using the Harvard referencing system you know, where you can cheat, you can have a vague idea of what some article's about and you just want to put, you just want to put a few proper names in the brackets yeah. so that the referee will say, yes, this person is across the literature. Yeah. So, so that type of flip, flip, what can I quote out of this in order to get through refereeing? Mm. I mean, that is extremely hostile to the sort of work that I do. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't care. Like, it, it's, I have actually made my living over a 15 period writing the equivalent of shock horror cat caught up tree. You know, I can, I can write very simple journalism. Mm -hmm. um, but when I work for myself intellectually, I, I don't want to do that. I like, yeah. I want to really understand how, He's, I, I see films as events, not as texts, mm -hmm. and, and I want to know how this event occurs in, in particular time and place, but then all of the relays that occur when other people take it up. Mm. You also like to talk about uh, issues that you've been really mulling over, like really reflecting on it, the kind of thing that can keep you awake at night. So you, you write about, there'll be several issues. It's not like, it's not like in this article, I'm going to find out whether uh, contemporary Hollywood action cinema um, steals some of its ideas from Hong Kong or something like that. It's never ever going to be that simple. It, it, it's always about like questions of what violence is, questions of, 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 of cultural difference and questions of, or, or, of tradition and, and, and just so many things distilled into it that it, it obliges a kind of really slow and attentive reading to, to appreciate the richness rather than rather than density it's it's like so 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 I find that with with some of your essays you go back to it and for, for many different reasons it becomes a resource like one essay will become a resource for mm. rumination or for my own thinking about my own angle through certain thematic questions about culture or violence or identity uh, or, or film, I suppose, as well. Mm. <laughs> well that's, that's nice to hear. I mean, it, it makes me very, very slow, um, but it's like, yeah, I can't help it. That's, yeah, it's just how it is. Yeah. Um, and uh, when you, um, so when you came to the first, martial arts so so i decided to try and have a conference and we we had a conference in um in 2015 and you came and you talked uh, a lot then about um a kind of hong kong 
activism and, 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 and cultural activism. And this was before yes. like, the Bruce Lee B. Water stuff was, was becoming a slogan for protesters. It was, oh. you, you were talking about that impulse. So it's not about the status of Bruce Lee in, in, in Hong Kong politics, but, but the use of certain kinds of uh, complex sets of imagery to, to articulate the protest. You, you, you were That's there right, yes. quite That's early on in the, in the game, yeah. weren't you? Yeah, it was um, a period, I, I think in 2014, maybe uh, a group called Mockingjo had a, um, a very a straight ripoff of Tarantino's methodology of stitching things together and they stitched together as, as the basic narrative of the most popular commercial Hong Kong film of that year, um, which is a wonderful film called um, Unbeatable in English. Mm. Um, uh, but they made it about the demonstrations which were beginning, you know, to, to take shape and a, a wonderful moment where a group in real life, a group of climbers climbed the face of the lion rock, which is an extraordinary symbol for Hong Kong people, mm -hmm. um, and hung a huge yellow, you know, banner uh, across it. Kind of in 2014, anyway, it was, it was in the uh, umbrella movement moment. Um, and, and what was extraordinary, because Unbeatable is so classical in its training sequences, um, like quite a few Hong Kong films, it mixes explicit recalls of Rocky mm -hmm. with classical Kung Fu scenes uh, and, and this little protest online film, which is vaporised now, um, did that in a wonderful way. So I talked about what a what a very classical story it was and why this type of martial arts pedagogy narrative mm -hmm. is repeated over the decades with you know wildly different political contents. Uh, but the durability of those stories is something I think a lot of Western fans even um, fail to really get to grips with. There's a deep, deep memory in uh, Chinese popular culture generally, I mean, a more restricted range of core stories, mm -hmm. but a very long sort of heritage of transformation. Mm. So you mentioned pedagogy. You, 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 you seem to be consistently interested in, in pedagogy in different ways. I mean, I'm thinking about the essay learning from Bruce Lee which is, is one of my all-time favourites. It's about like, you know, it, well, what, it, if I ask you, the, rather than me trying to, trying to summarise it, what, what would you say is the status of, of pedagogy and martial arts pedagogy or learning about pedagogy from martial arts or like how, what, what's the status of pedagogy within, within that or your work generally? What's the interest? Oh, that's a really hard question. Um, um... I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that essay very oh, okay. well. Okay. Um, but it, it, it's quite interesting. I, as we speak, I'm writing about it in 
the Hollywood working girl films of the 1980s. Okay. You know, and it is, it is something to do with how different versions of pedagogy can give you new paths to freedom. I think it's in a way that simple. Um, and I love those stories because mm -hmm. I'm always looking for such paths myself. Mm -hmm. And it's it's really not all that complicated. Um, and then particular instances become complicated, you know, in terms of how much other stuff they put into this basic mix. But one of the reasons why I love Hong Kong pedagogy films is that there's potentially so very formalistic, you know, you 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 are rarely surprised. Mm -hmm. at the level of the overall um, story. I mean, it does happen, but not all that often. Mm -hmm. uh, and so everything wonderful is in the variation. You know, I'm a, I'm a sort of affectively, I'm deeply a Deleuzian and I love continuous variation. And that is, that is what is in the core of, of that aesthetic for me. But it, it also occurs in, in Hollywood. I'm trying to explain why I think, you know, the much maligned film Showgirls mm -hmm. is a much better pedagogic film than Pretty Woman, but this is not your problem, Paul. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, uh, interestingly, it's funny the way that, but it might become so, and it probably unexpectedly will. I'll be some point in a few years, I'll be like really worrying about this question and trying to work it out. Um, I was talking to um, Peter Lodge, the, the historian, um, and he, and it was after we'd, we'd done the podcast recording thing, and, um, and he said that, it, it used, he said something at the conference, he said, oh, like films because they're not real. And you, after, after his talk, you put your hand up and you were like, I just want to take issue with that. Um, films really are real. And... And I think he's been sort of beating himself up for using that expression in the first place, but also thinking about, about the status of, of film in relation to history and reality and culture and everything. Um, <laughs> it's like it hasn't gone away since then. So uh, just, uh, just, just to just add a little bit something to this debate, what, if you say films are real, I mean, what does that mean to someone who's like maybe really straightforward film is fiction, Bruce Lee is fantasy, Kung Fu films are fantasy, fantasy, fantasy. How does it, how is a film real for you? Well, all, all the things you mentioned earlier, I mean, I think historians get into terrible strife because, because the first word they think of is fiction. Mm. You know, I mean, a film is not just fiction. Uh, it's a creation. But so are lots of real things, including the technology we're using now. Mm -hmm. So film is real because it's produced by a vast industry, which employs squillions of people. Uh, it's, it's distributed into social situations, which are completely real. Mm -hmm. And it's real because it gets into your head. It gets into your dreams. I'm old enough to swear that people kiss differently now because of movies than they did 60 years ago or 50 years ago. Okay. You know, you see, you see images of things and you cannot not be changed by that, which is 
to come back to martial arts pedagogy, what emulation is about. Yeah. It's like you make a video for me and because I'm a bit crippled at the moment, I'm imitating your gestures. This is real. Mm-hmm. What's mm-hmm. not what's not to be real about that? But but the the old school sort of version of film and the imagination as fictitious and therefore somehow factitiously invented mm-hmm. um, really just misses all that, just discards it. Mm-hmm. And they end up saying really silly things. Mm. Would be interesting to, to have a look at have a look at the history of like of, of movie kisses, wouldn't it? Yes. Uh, and, and the changing genre of kisses, because you know, the, when it comes to everything, really, the the genre, the, the style within films changes, styles of fighting changes, even within traditional or authentic, even within nostalgic types of, of films, the fighting, the choreography, and the editing is all different, and and you know the. the yeah, I agree. I mean, that's a that's a very kind of like Marcel Mousian kind of a of a of a thing, isn't it? Like people see it on on the screen and then they go and do. So fighting is is has changed. I remember maybe ten years ago, maybe more. Someone pointing out this is just one of those factoids that may or may not be true. Like in a fight now, because of the UFC, someone is equally as likely to throw a kind of swinging, arching right haymaker as their first technique as they are to charge in for a double leg takedown because they've watched it so many times. I mean, this is, this is a point that you've made yourself very well, you know, in, in your writing that very few people now are not in some way <clears throat> shaped in their perception of martial arts by some kind of cinema or other audiovisual imagery. And and it comes down to the most fine-grained types of reality. Like when I lived in Hong Kong, I could afford and had the time to do one-on-one boxing training with one person five times a week. Mm. Can't do that in Sydney. I couldn't possibly. So I swallowed my pride and started joining boxercise. Mm-hmm. classes mm-hmm. and while I was in Hong Kong I had kind of missed a lot of the shift to MMA styles I did go to see one match and it was really creepy because there were these white corporate women smashing each other with that Chinese trainers cacking themselves all around the ring really enjoying it, mm-hmm. it <clears throat> I go to boxer size and they hand out pads to you and put it on the ground and get you to go like this. You know, now it could have been uh, Wing Chun, but of course it wasn't. It was straight off MMA imagery. And I thought it was really stupid. I said, excuse me, can I just kick the bag? You yeah. know, I'm nearly 60. I do not want to get on the yeah. floor. And do this. I, don't, I don't want to do ground and pound, yeah. <laughs> no, but, the, you know, the sort of 10th um, rate gym imperative that this is what you should be doing. Mm. Uh, straight out of media. It's yeah. Straight out of media. And that's real. It's, yeah. I can, you know, take you around the corner to this gym. It's a real place. And people are doing this. Okay. Why? It's, yeah. 
Interesting, interesting. Okay, so in terms of your um, current work, I get like, what are you working on? What's 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 in process? What's what's your current interests in this? In not not in terms of working girl, but in terms of um, in terms maybe in terms of things slightly closer to martial arts. <laughs> yes. No. No. Um, well, as you know, I've been working for many years with my colleague. Um, Sifu Stephen Chan, not Sensei Stephen Chan, from Lingnan, um, on a book about how uh, martial arts films made in Hong Kong since 1997 have, um, in the ways in which they rework classic stories, mm. responded to the spiral of changing situations and public feeling uh, okay. in that place. I don't want to say too much about it because I feel I jinx myself. Okay. But with typical slowness, you know, I think I've been writing the outline um, back and forth with Stephen for maybe 18 months. Okay. Uh, and once I can finish these, these um, essays, that, uh, you know, about other things. I, I want to complete that and then we will just write the book. Yeah. And will the, will the writing be easier once you've agonized out the, 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 you know, the structure of it or? Yes. It will right. just, because you, you're working out the actual details, but what about this, but what about that? You're really, That's right. so you're not just doing a basic sketch like this, Chapter one, we'll talk about this era. Chapter two, we'll talk about this. It's like you're working out exactly what, okay. You might hate to hear this, Paul, but the unfinished outline is already 70 pages long. Okay. Which uh, I will, when it's finished, I will have to sit down and, and turn it into something different. But we have a very, uh, 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 not a problem, but a... Uh, condition to confront, mm -hmm. which I think is structurally significant, like real, in that I'm a native speaker of English mm -hmm. um, who loves martial arts cinema, I have a little bit of Cantonese, but that's mostly swearing and food. Mm -hmm. And Stephen is fluent in Mandarin and Cantonese, uh, and spoken English, but he writes completely, mm. you know, differently in English. Mm. So how do you write? And he's interested in Hong Kong much more broadly. Mm -hmm. And he also knows all of the mainland Chinese scholarship on um, martial arts mythologies. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm. So how do you write, actually really write a book together? Yeah. And... Something I, I um, we originally had a third uh, collaborator, Lee Siulung, to whom we're very indebted for, who spoke at your conference, mm -hmm. for many ideas. But I could always see something coming where at the end they would just write their thing with their interests and their background and, and I would have an impossible task to produce a uniform English text, mm -hmm. which a publisher would look at. Yeah. 
so what we decided to do was agree step by step on the shape of the argument. So I would draft the outline of each chapter sometimes three times mm-hmm. till we secure that. Uh, you know, at, inevitably at the end there will be stylistic issues, but there won't be fundamental nightmare intellectual gaps. Okay. But if you, if you don't do about that, if you don't do that sort of work, mm. and this is why, yeah, I guess I'm some kind of fundamentalist really, but if you don't do that sort of work, you are not doing transnational collaboration. You're doing globalised Anglo, you know, processed work. Because you you were very, you probably still are a bit involved, but you were very involved in the Inter-Asia Cultural Studies um, Association. Is it Association or Society? Um, Um, Society. Society. And that was um, very um, kind of organised by problematics taken from post-colonial studies and the idea of collaboration and, and in a kind of, in a, in a non-Western or non-US kind of, so th- the idea was everything doesn't need to go through the structures and logics and values and, and everything of, of a dominant Anglo-centric um, Western, I'll use the word hegemony for, for, for the sake yeah. of it. I, I would say production process. Okay. You know, because, I mean, one of the things that is important in Inter-Asia is uh, Quan Xing Chen, who was the original Mm -hmm. animator of it, Mm -hmm. was very determined from the beginning to not only excavate intellectual histories from the Philippines to Thailand and South Asia, as well as the Japanese and Chinese areas that are better known in the West, mm-hmm. but also to um, distribute them, to get other people to read them. Um, and the older generations were extraordinarily learned in Western thought. You know, key Japanese philosophers of the mid 20th century studied with Heidegger. They were all influenced by Marx. You know, so it's never a sort of let's dump the West thing, although it can be a let's um, parochialise it in Deepish Jacobati's term. But it's much more about how you go about working together, how you um, produce collaborative work and learn about each other. To produce something which would not have been written without that collaboration. Okay, and uh, what do you just as a I I guess because we're both cultural studies type people um, in our at least in our titles in our job titles. Mm. um, What do you think about the status of the study of martial arts within within that kind of disciplinary field? I mean, what's your have you seen it change over the years? And I guess when we say, I'm going to say martial arts in a very broad sense, you can interpret that any way you like. What has, have things changed and which direction have things gone with the, the cultural studies or media studies, media culture, gender studies approach to, to martial arts, in your opinion? Well, I mean, you would know much better than me, but um, I often, I have sometimes felt that there wasn't, that there was too much dismissal of 
film and cultural mm. issues that were not about narrow understandings of the culture at a particular martial art. Mm. Um, but I, I suppose I think as I look at the publications, many of which I found out about from you or Ben Judkins, um, uh, Kung Fu Tea, which I read religiously, mm. uh, there's, there is a much wider and richer conversation beginning to emerge. Mm. The other stuff is still there. Um, you know, but I think that's not to do with martial arts so much as kind of really limited forms of sociology and um, very kind of thin understandings of the potential of history, which I would not attribute to Peter Lodge, by the way. I mean, okay. I, I have to say his book on Chinese martial arts is the only dynasty-based history of China I have ever read all the way through. It's a wonderful book. But, but there are, you know, there are some pretty kind of skimpy things mm. there. But I, I really feel that that is um, shifting and there's just, I can't understand why people don't rush into the field. It's the richest intersection of topics and problems that you could ever want. Yeah, I mean, I still, I still, because, um, you know, we, we only have a certain number of hours in the day and a certain number of days in the week and a certain, a certain amount of energy, but everything that, that I take into a much broader realm of teaching and, and reviewing and assessing, it's all really come to me through studying martial arts. My, if I'm interdisciplinary at all, it's because I've been trying to work out how to, how to approach things in martial arts. I mean, it's the attempt to study martial arts that has broadened my intellectual horizons um, more than bringing broad horizons to a to a, a, a specific thing. And I think I think I, I can credit. Uh, I mean, I can I can acknowledge your role in that. Your the, the the influence of your work on on emphasizing not just not being complicated the way that a theorist like your caricature of a post-structuralist is to be complicated like like Ray Chow once wrote that the key strategy of, of deconstruction post-structuralism is to show that so things are more complicated to make complicated and that is largely a complicatedness of thought but I think that your approach has always been to go but there's this issue and there's this issue and 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 all of these things like it, it's not just a it's not just complication as a as a principle but as something that you discover by unwrapping and by and, and by going how do I take this seriously like where do I put it and where do I find it and where does it move and what is the significance of this as an event so I don't and know why do I care about it Sorry? I said, is there and for me the question is always why do I care about it yeah which is why I'm not a particularly disciplined person you know the the um cliche answer that historians used to give is why did you study this person's life because it was there in the archive you yeah. know i never have an answer like that yeah um and i've never particularly liked excessively narcissistic writing so the answer, well, because I love it, is not enough for me. So There's finding out why you care about this problem and yeah. not that problem yeah. um, is, is 
That's the way through to make something up. There's a wonderful video online of you at a conference and like maybe a decade ago, maybe more, and it's a postgrad conference somewhere. And and you're just going, you're sitting at the panel at the front and you're offering advi you know, advice to, to, to graduate and you're like, for a presentation, don't tell us your methodology. Don't tell us about that. Tell us what you thought and what you found out. Like, tell us what your question was and then what you found out. Like, we don't care about interview samples and databases. Just tell us what you have learned. <laughs> oh, that was brilliant. I always show it to PhD students, like, just tell us. Like, we don't care how you did it. Like, we can ask about that afterwards, but like, <laughs> don't get It's naughty advice for a social science thesis, but it's good advice for a presentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, well, um, Megan, um, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time um, out of your busy day to talk to me. It's been um, an absolute pleasure and, um, and hopefully, I know that we're hoping that we, we were meant to be together at a conference in France right now, the yeah. Lille. And then we were hoping to meet in Marseille in, in July, but that's all been COVIDed out of existence. Um, but hopefully next year, eh? I hope so. I mean, Australia is, there's no planes. They probably won't let us out of the continent until next year. Yeah. So, and then people say, why? And I say, well, it's 102 deaths. What do you want? You know? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but still, um, I hope I see you. And thank you for asking me. Oh, thank you so much, Megan. I'll see you later. Thank you.